Welcome back to Conversations for the Good. Good morning, Dr. Jane. Good morning, Anna. How are you today? Well, I can't believe this is our 52nd episode. Oh my you know? God. Yes. Oh my yes. It's just it's just really unbelievable. You have been so amazing and generous to provide us with such a wealth of information over the past year. I know it's been so extremely helpful to many of us. And you have been an absolutely delightful partner throughout this entire project. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. So today, I thought we could talk about a very sensitive topic for both of us, caregiving. You know, it's sensitive because it's so pervasive and personal because of my own experience caring for my aging mother. And I know also you had firsthand experience caring for your terminally ill husband. And um, so I wanted to take a look at what it takes for the caregiver to survive sometimes impossible demands. Well, Anna, this is a great topic. And by definition, a caregiver is someone who provides the necessary support to someone who maybe due to age or illness or disability, could be any other factors, you know, really cannot take care of themselves. So this may involve, as you well know, shopping, housekeeping, providing transportation, the full range of personal hygiene, toilet uh, assistance, dressing, also coordinating, you know, appointments and medical treatments and monitoring and managing medications along with management of finances. So the other piece that's important to know is the intensity of these tasks really depends on the condition of the care recipient. Yes. And, you know, and the list goes on and on. It's constantly changing as needs and the health issues change frequently. Well, that's right. And, you know, I thought maybe we just start by reviewing some of the statistics because I found them just incredible. There are 50 million unpaid caregivers in the United States in 2020. You know, and as we know, the, the world population is aging. You know, the boomers are retiring, are already retired. You know, and this is a central demographic shift, which challenges all of the health services, both public and, and private. And the, the population of people 65 and older in the United States is going to double between the, the years of 2016 and 2060. And we're going to jump from 50 million to 98 million. And as I looked through some of this, this, uh, the statistics and research, I found a major study that talked about, it was about on caregivers. And it talked about the fact that caregivers, about 70% of them, have to cut back or quit their jobs to accommodate the demands of an ailing or disabled family member. You know, it could be a relative, a spouse, or maybe even a child, you know, who has special needs. And the typical caregiver is female. Now, keep in mind, this is the typical caregiver, is, is a female 46 years old who works outside the home and devotes over 20 hours a week to provide unpaid caregiving to her mother. So that's kind of a, the, the, the stereotype. And many caregivers are older adults themselves. In fact, the average age of a caregiver supporting someone who is 65 years or older is actually 63 years. You know, so it's, it, it's not, we're not talking about young people. And in a recent study, 
there was um, they they looked at how what was the distance between the the caregiver and the care recipient, and about eighty three percent of those folks lived close close by, but twenty four percent you know actually lived with the care recipient, and another sixty one percent lived an hour away, and fifteen percent lived you know one or two hours away. But what I also found interesting is that even folks who did not live with the care recipient, about 55% of them visited that, that individual um, more than once a week. So there's that constant, you know, back and forth, back and forth, as you and I well know. And then there's also what I found staggering was the financial situations that caregivers find themselves in, because the out-of-pocket expenses for caregivers taking care of someone who was 50 years or older, back in 2007 was the last um, um, actual um, dollar amount that I was able to find. It was $5,531 per year, out-of-pocket expenses. And so if we, if we kind of move that into the cost of living increase over that, you know, over time to where we are present, it'd be like $7,000 out-of-pocket per year. Yeah. Well, sounds that sounds about right to me. You know, all remarkably familiar. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's uh, let's talk about the caregivers. Who are they, and how do they manage juggling the multiple multitude, I should say, of responsibilities? Well, on a, you know, women traditionally have been more likely to take the caregiving role. Although I have to say that men do it as well these days. And it was my own younger brother Matthew who really took the lead. Um, in taking care of my mom when her health began to decline. So with uncare, unpaid caregivers, you know, the, the, the recipient most frequently are loved ones, parents, spouses, uh, could be partners or children with special needs, as I, I said before, and usually as an act of love and devotion. Yet it can also be a tremendous drain on one's physical and also psychological resources. I mean, this can be a situation where the demands really do outstrip the resources. And the person who takes the lead in the caregiving role very often is that family member who is the rescuer or the accommodator. You know, maybe they've, they've kind of taken up the role over the years of being the problem solver, kind of keeping the family ship righted, that, that sense of, you know, there's a job to be done and I'm the person to do it. And it really kind of falls on them. Yeah, I'm sure there are situations like mine where there aren't other siblings to carry the load. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, and that's that's an interesting scenario in and of itself, because there are some times when there is no immediate offspring to take care of the individual who is ailing or, or in decline. So the tasks maybe falls on to, you know, relatives, nieces, nephews you know, or sometimes even friends. I've also known neighbors who've pitched in and taken, taken you know, their role in caregiving of someone who was in need next door. Um, there's also, you know, there are um, sibs, or siblings, I should say, who live at a distance, you know, so they, they just don't have the means, the time, the energy to come the distance as frequently as, as is needed. You know, there are also siblings who, sometimes just are unavailable for a myriad of other reasons. You know, and then there are also the siblings who are kind of what I call MIA, you know, missing in action. And 
this sometimes is a, as a matter of that. We've talked about it in another episode. Uh, it could be a matter of what we call a diffusion of responsibility. It's like they see what's happening. They see that the caregiving is is being handled. And so there's this attitude of, you all are doing such an awesome job. You really don't need my help. So then they don't step forward. And then there's also the family that has conflict or estrangement or sometimes just a history of poor communication. Yeah. It's impossible to step away from this kind of responsibility. Well, yes. And, and oftentimes, caregiving may offer a, a longed-for connection with the care recipient. You know, it, it could be redemption of the past or, you know, resolving grievances. Um, it can really often be a mixed bag for many folks who undertake the job. You know, for many, the act of caregiving can be a, a very intimate two-way connection, a relationship that they've been wanting and needing for a long time. And, and they might find it deeply rewarding and emotionally fulfilling. However, the, the research studies, all of them indicate that most caregivers are unprepared for the demands of the role and receive very little physical or financial support. So this time, you know, this may in time be considerably depleting you know, on the caregiver's mental, emotional, and also physical health. Yes, you know, it's on call 24-7, I know, which it has been for me, and which sets us up to forego our own needs, which absolutely affects our health. You're absolutely right. You know, and the most influential factor in a family decision to move an ailing relative to a long-term care facility is the health care, the, the caregiver's, own physical health. So as they decline, they're no longer able to offer the caregiving. You know, and, and in a depleted state, the caregiver very often begins to feel trapped. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, you know, that this can be, this trappedness can be some of the most devastating kind of, kind of stress that we can experience. You know, it's, um, it's that sense of helplessness and sometimes hopelessness, feeling stuck and like there's no way out. This is also called painful engagement and can very often be the predictor of a downward spiral, sometimes into depression. So it can start with something like I'm having trouble sleeping and move into a, a more pronounced sleep disturbance, or just start out with an irritability, uh, just kind of feeling uneasy in most situations. You know, we begin to limit our pleasurable experiences, things that we used to enjoy, we no longer involve ourselves in, we cancel plans. And very often there's this, this um, growing sense of cynicism, you know, kind of a negative bias. I'm seeing everything through a, uh, a negative lens. That's how I'm interpreting the world. And then there's also um, an increase in physical symptoms, body symptoms, body pains, tension, fatigue is often pronounced, and also a decrease in attention and concentration, not being able to remember things or keep up with things that we need to keep track of, and then moving into just full-fledged exhaustion. You know, this is currently also referred to as compassion fatigue because it really comes from, you know, caregiving and empathy in the caregiving. And it's the natural consequence of caring for people who are suffering. So it's an extreme form of burnout. And it isn't an overnight occurrence. It takes time and it evolves over time, but it really moves into 
an overwhelm, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual overwhelm, where we feel like we're kind of emptied out. There's like, there's nothing, there's nothing in me, you know, and I often use the analogy of the, the pot of stew, you know, it's like, we're all operating with a pot of stew. And if we give away all the meat and potatoes, and we never replenish it, we can't be too surprised that we're sitting around with an empty pot. <laughs> yes, I'm very familiar with, the, with how that feels, Dr. Jane. Or the other analogy that we've used, like the safety instructions on airplanes, you know, apply the oxygen mask to yourself before assisting others. That's right. Exactly, Anna. Exactly. Yeah. So is burnout the same as depression? No. Um, I mean, in actuality, it can lead to depression, um, but they're not the same. You know, burnout is caused by different triggers. It, it's usually related to the workplace or work situation, and it's really not considered a medical condition. Yet, as I said, left unattended, it can deteriorate into a depressive episode. So depression is more of a really a, a sound medical condition, which includes a constellation of symptoms that include things like change in mood and interest. Sometimes there are suicidal thoughts as well. So it really involves a depressed mood, a loss of pleasure, accompanied by shifts in thinking and also behavior. There are also, you know, symptoms of problems with sleeping, appetite, you know, gait, uh, weight gain, weight loss, um, depending on the individual and how they're coping. These all comprise a real medical condition. So burnout tends to have a more systemic or, or circumstantial base and depression more biological or physiological base. But let me say up front, you know, when in doubt, consult a, a doctor, consult a physician. Yes. Um, yes, I, I totally agree. And, and can we explore the risk factors and symptoms? Sure, Anna. You know, interestingly enough, one of the greatest risks is when the caregiver actually lives with the individual that they're caring for, because it's like there's no way there's no way out. It's kind of like there's no escape. Um, but also a risk factor is that social isolation, you know, not just if you're living with the care uh, recipient, but also you're so exhausted that you start cutting yourself off from social connections. You know, if there's a depression of history, you know, that's also a risk factor. You know, going through any kind of um, uh, stress, whether there be financial stress or, or um, problems within your own family unit, Anything that sets us up to be vulnerable um, will be a risk, a risk factor as well. Also, not having a break from the caregiving, you know, or, or poor coping skills or a deterioration of coping skills, you know, in the exhaustion phase. Sometimes, you know, the individual has no choice as whether or not they wanted to be the caregiver. It's kind of a forced choice. And that can also play with our thinking and play with our emotions. Also, there's, there's also a, um, a piece, and, and I know that you recognize this, is that when there are no respite options, you know, to give relief to the caregiver, or if the care recipient refuses respite options, that can also be an incredible risk factor. Yes, and this sets up the caregiver for that downward spiral that, you know, <laughs> that painful engagement you mentioned earlier. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the caregiver moves into an emotional overwhelm, you know, physical exhaustion, 
you know, moving into that painful engagement. And so very often they find themselves in constant worry and anxiety, tired and fatigued all the time. Obviously, the sleep disturbances tend to be the root of, of much of this. And then because they don't have a lot of resources, physical, mental, emotional resources, there's a lot of irritation and anger, loss of, of all interest and pleasure. And, and very often I find that there's this prevailing um, sadness that kind of runs through one's life, body aches and pains, particularly headaches. And there's also a propensity then because of this just feeling so down and out to abuse alcohol and drugs. Well, Dr. Jane, what are some strategies for dealing with this type of stress? Well, it all starts with asking for and accepting help, Anna. You know, and, and we really did a nice exploration of this in our last episode when we, when we talked about asking for help. Yes, yes absolutely, we did. That was, that was episode 51. Mm-hmm. Yes. So really, it's about, it's about accepting help in many forms. And in accepting help, we're, it can take, take many different directions. It could start with, for instance, delegating tasks to others. You know, delegating the task that the care recipient needs could be simple things like shopping or running errands. And if possible, focusing on what we can reasonably provide and engaging others to fill the gaps. The other piece is, you know, we all need to let go of the guilt, you know, set realistic goals for ourselves, set some boundaries, and as much as possible, stay connected. You know, find out what the community resources are, what caregiving services might be provided somewhere in whatever agencies we have uh, access to. You know, I also suggest getting involved in a support group, although I have to say that I find most caregivers are too exhausted, you know, too overwhelmed to get away to even a virtual support group. But it, it really can at times provide validation and encouragement in an impossible situation. But when all else fails, stay close to family and friends if possible. And especially looking for people who can offer um physical support, but also non-judgmental emotional support. We don't need any criticism at this point. And it's also recognizing our own signs and symptoms that we're getting close to or actually into the painful engagement, the irritability, the sleep disturbances, the the body's um, symptoms, all those things that we've talked about. And consider investigating respite possibilities, you know? And the other piece is, to really set personal goals for ourselves, personal health goals, self-care goals, restorative health, health um, uh, restorative sleep, you know, eating healthy. Um, if we can't exercise, at least intentional movement, you know, kind of doing some stretches throughout the day, just kind of staying, you know, kind of coming back to my body and taking care of it in a very intentional way. And the other piece, Anna, is learn some quieting techniques. We have several on our conversations for the good library, um, something like the three-minute breathing space or the relaxation response are those very, very quick, but very, very helpful and very powerful interventions. And also keep, keep the doctor, you, the caregiver recipients, the caregiver's doctor, and also the care recipients, doctors in the loop. 
Well, all the things that you just highlighted, Dr. Jane, are very important. It, it definitely takes a team, a team effort. You know, we focused on the unpaid caregiver, but caregiving has many faces. What about those others? Well, good question, Anna. You know, in all care- caregivers, because they care for the ailing and incapacitated, you know, are potential victims of the compassion fatigue or burnout. So they fall into multiple categories. You know, we've talked about the family caregivers, uh, but they're also professional caregivers. You know, those uh, medical staff in a variety of venues, assisted living communities, and skilled nursing facilities. You know, they're also independent caregivers and private duty caregivers, also volunteer, volunteer caregivers. So all of these people are susceptible to the risk factors and the signs and symptoms of compassion, fatigue, and burnout. You know, if symptoms are left unattended. Yeah, well, I'm also going to suggest that people take a look at the Conversations for the Good, episode 37, Sacred Self-Care. You know, it might be helpful because we explore the various dimensions of self-care in more depth. I know it's been uh, incredibly helpful to me. Good, good. Good idea, Anna. Well, I hope that all the caregivers that are listening have found this information to be very helpful. Thank you once again, Dr. Jane, and happy anniversary. Thank you, Anna. Until our next conversation.